following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Until about a hundred years ago, the way jewelers would test gold to make sure that it was true gold, rather than what's called fool's gold, was to bite down on it. You'll still see uh, Olympic gold medalists do that, even though their medals aren't really made of gold anymore, at least not pure gold. You see, true gold had a distinct softness to it, and an experienced jeweler could recognize uh, the nobility of that gold, the truth of it, with his teeth. Our passage this morning presents to us a tale of two kings, of King Herod the Great and King Jesus the Christ. And it also gives us two tests, one test of our minds and then one test of our hearts, one test of our knowledge concerning true nobility, what makes a king a king, and one test of our will to seek and to pursue the one king with a rightful claim on our hearts and on our allegiance. Matthew, in the previous chapter, presented to us this true king, this King Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, conceived by the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin, fully human, sharing in her substance, and fully divine of the substance of God the Father himself, son of God and son of man. And why did he come? We covered this last week. He came to fulfill God's worldwide gracious and unstoppable purpose. The angel of the Lord said to Joseph that that his adopted son, Joseph's adopted son, was coming to save his people from their sins. And as we sang last week, this salvation is of the Father's love begotten in eternity past. Now this week, we shall take this king, this King Jesus, and contrast him against the world's petty tyrants. So many imposters with as much nobility as fool's gold, breaking our teeth when we try to bite down on them. Now this is the first test. Matthew's account of Christ's nativity highlights the supernatural involvement of God in confirming Jesus as the true king of the Jews and the marvelous light of the nations. And then the second test, the one for our hearts, is seen in Matthew's contrast of the way of genuine faith, genuine faith in this Jesus, and in the way, sadly, of rank unbelief. And it's surprising who it is that demonstrates each of these things. So what I seek to show you today, put it all together into one sentence, is that Jesus Christ is worthy of your adoration, even when it is dangerous to give him honor. Jesus Christ is worthy of your adoration, even when it is dangerous to give him honor. We'll look at this under two headings, working through the text um, bit by bit. The adoration of Jesus Christ is a worthy business. And then the adoration of Jesus Christ is, in fact, a dangerous business. So first, considering the adoration of Jesus Christ being a worthy business, we'll look at three things relating to how the Magi go about doing this. First, the worthiness uh, motivating the Magi's errand, and then the, the worthiness confirmed by Scripture itself in how Matthew uses 
the uh, prophecy from Micah chapter 5, and then the worthiness displayed in the Magi's homage or, or worship of Jesus at the end of the passage. First, the Magi's worthiness um, or the worthiness of Christ is what motivated the Magi's errand in verses 1 and 2. Look at them with me. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. This verse really sets the, the stage. It, it introduces the account uh, that follows by relating two new details to us that were absent, conspicuously absent, I should say, from chapter 1 about the birth of this Jesus the place of his birth, and the time of his birth. First, the place, Bethlehem in Judea, and the time during the reign, toward the end of the reign, of King Herod the Great. But as verses 1 and 2 make plain to us, the focus of the account is on the significance of Christ's birth itself, and not so much the place or the time of it. We see here in the second half of verse 1 that the Magi, or wise men, uh, from the distant east, wherever that may be, arrived in Jerusalem seeking after he who was born king of the Jews. This is the significance of the occasion. Why did they come to Jerusalem then and not go straightway to Bethlehem? Well, because they didn't have yet revealed to them the exact location of this king. And so they go to Jerusalem, which was the capital city of the Jews. They knew either by wisdom inherited from Daniel or some other way, uh, by the guidance of the star, that they were to go to Judea. They were to go to the land of the Jews, to ancient Israel. They didn't know exactly what town yet. So they land in Jerusalem looking for a king. You know, it's pretty straightforward. A capital place, a capital city is a pretty good place to look for a king. But why were these wise men on an errand to find this newborn king of the Jews? The text tells us, in, in verse 2, they say that they came to worship him. They came to worship him. They, they came to adore him. They traveled hundreds of miles, perhaps thousands of miles, we really don't know where exactly they're from, far from the security of their homes in order to adore, to worship, to, to pay homage and do honor to King Jesus, whose star summoned them from the east. See, they say, we saw his star in the east. Surely for the wise men, all this trouble was worth it. They were rightly motivated to adore this Jesus Christ because the adoration of Jesus Christ is a worthy business. They understood that. This worthiness motivated the Magi's errand. Now, if, if we truly believe what we confess, in, um, about Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession puts it this way, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature. If we believe this, if this is true about Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, son of David, son of Abraham, then all men everywhere must have an even more vigorous motivation than the Magi did to take all necessary pains, to make whatever travels are necessary to worship him. You see, these Magi, I'm not convinced that they knew that Jesus Christ was God. They may have had an inkling of that. They knew there was something special and something divine about him. 
But did they really understand that he was fully God and fully man? I'm not convinced that that's the case. They likely came to him to pay homage to him as a great king and prophesied deliverer, this king of the Jews. But they did recognize that the star was a signal and, in some sense, his. And so they regarded him as worthy of honor, even worthy of a very long and arduous journey. The Magi arrive in Jerusalem. They're eager to uh, complete their mission to adore Jesus. And my question then to you and to each of us is, are you likewise motivated to worship God in Christ each time you come into his presence in worship? Or are you distracted? Are you worn down? Are you disinterested? Are you bored? Are you coming into worship for some other purpose? I was speaking to a man just the other day, and in his testimony he said he would go to church because that's where his boss was on Sunday mornings. But the Lord converted him, and now he goes to church to worship the living God. And particularly here, God in Christ. So if worship is a drag, if it feels like pulling a sack of stones through a mud pit, then I would put the Magi before you this morning. Refresh your estimation of Christ's worthiness to be worshipped. And and the worthwhileness, the worthiness of adoring this Jesus Christ. If you're convinced that worshipping or adoring him is a worthy business, then you will be motivated, even more motivated than these journeyers, these Magi, to come and to worship him. While the Magi and their, their experience here uh, continues, not only does, uh, does his worthiness motivate them, but his worthiness is confirmed by the scripture that's then presented to the Magi to direct them further. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. When the Magi get to Jerusalem, they may have been surprised to find widespread ignorance concerning the newborn king. People are a bit incredulous. What are you doing here? Everybody's going about their everyday life uh, under the oppressive rule of the Roman uh, appointee, King Herod the Great. It's like, it's like if you had gone to Thanksgiving dinner this past Thursday and you get there and nobody's doing anything. Nobody's getting anything ready. You say, aren't I here for Thanksgiving? Don't you know it's Thanksgiving? Didn't, wasn't I supposed to come? And they're like, oh, really? It's Thanksgiving? It's like a surprise to them. It's only the arrival of the Magi that really disturbs and stirs up the status quo. And, and Herod calls together the Sanhedrin, the council described here as chief priests and scribes, likely would have also involved leaders of the Pharisees. The Sadducees were largely um, in the chief priest class to inquire about this supposed newborn king of the Jews. He wants to know what the deal is with this infant Messiah that the Magi are talking about. And the Sanhedrin actually is theologically orthodox on this point. They know their scriptures. They respond by faithfully answering his question down to the very point, focusing here on the location in verse 6. Uh, in verse 5, they say, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. This is what the prophecy says. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But the lasting significance of the prophecy, though they're focusing on the location, because that's what their king's question was, the lasting significance of this prophecy through the prophet Micah is this promise in the second half of verse 6. 
of a great ruler, a great leader, who, like King David, will shepherd his people Israel, the people of God, who, unlike the faithless shepherds of Ezekiel's prophecy, will rather be a faithful shepherd, described in Ezekiel 34 and in other places of Scripture. Now, notice how this quotation here from uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it's different from what we read in our Old Testament reading. We might want to ask, what is this about? Is this a contradiction in God's word? No. Not in substance. Though the form differs, there's no contradiction here. Uh, the translations out of Hebrew and out of Greek, they, they're, they're a little bit different in the wording, but they convey the same meaning, and, and such is the way with many Old Testament citations in the New Testament. It was common practice in ancient Jewish and Christian uh, communities to insert commentary, to paraphrase, perhaps, when citing authoritative texts from Scripture about this or that doctrine. And the point here that, that they're making, the commentary that's being made here by the Sanhedrin or by Matthew in inserting these words are by no means least among the leaders of Judah to the prophet's exact words was to emphasize that little tiny Bethlehem, this insignificant village about six miles away from Jerusalem, would become one of the most important settings in world history with the birth of Christ. Certainly this place the little village of David is precious in the sight of God. Now, there are many causes for coming to Christ. One man, like I said, went to church because that's where his boss was. But for some of us, more seriously, it's a crisis that drives us to Christ. It's, it's the recognition of need that then compels you to seek for divine help. For some, it's simple curiosity about the scriptures, and then you alight upon something unexpected, the full deity and humanity of Christ and his saving work. Now, for you boys and girls, and for little Seth this morning in his baptism, you come to Christ here at church because your parents load you up into the van and bring you. You don't really have much say in the matter, but whatever it is that brings us here together, we find in the word of God faithfully read and preached, confirmation of this, that Jesus Christ is Savior King, that he has come to save us from our sins, that he indeed is worthy of our worship. For as Micah tells us, this ruler in Israel, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth, from little tiny Bethlehem, even to Woodruff, South Carolina, and beyond. This one will be our peace. He's no ordinary earthly ruler. His domains really have no boundaries. But he shares in the divine power of God, and the word at every point confirms this to us for this point. He is God, and he is worthy of your adoration. Now, this worthiness, which motivated the Magi, and which is confirmed in Scripture, is also displayed then in what they actually do when they meet him in verses 9 through 11. 
In verse 9, the Magi have made their way down to Bethlehem. And what they do when they arrive displays the worthiness of Christ to be honored as a king. First, notice that the miraculous star appears again. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This miraculous star leads them to the very house where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are staying at this time. And this is a cause for great joy for them, for exceedingly great rejoicing, it says. Now, second, consider how they honor Christ then in verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They don't worship Mary. They worship Jesus. You know, that's an important point to make. You think it's pretty clear from the text, but a large group of people have really messed that one up. But they give to him the very best, cream of the crop, royal gifts, precious metals. They give him gold. They give him precious spices, frankincense, and myrrh. And and though it's not certain that, that they are honoring Christ in full recognition that he is God, the grammar that Matthew uses to describe what they do is most frequently used to describe divine worship. Um, it, it's, it doesn't translate well into the English, but when idolaters worship false gods, it would be like translating it, uh, he came before the idol and worshipped it. But when when the New Testament describes the worship of God, most frequently it uses language like the people come and give worship to him, to him uh, as, as a person, as true and living God. And so whatever the Magi had in mind, their adoration, and the way it's described here in Matthew's Gospel, displays Christ's royal worthiness, but also his divine worthiness to be worshipped and adored. The scriptures are abundantly clear. This Jesus is God. Now, it's on the basis of these three royal gifts that the idea arose at some point in the medieval church that these wise men are three kings. And the text doesn't say that. The text calls them magi. And the text doesn't tell us how many there are. In fact, the text tells us that they're simply wise men. Men. However, Psalm 72, verse 11 does say, Let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. And verse 15 in that same passage continues, Let them, the kings, bless him all day long. And so though these, three, these magi are not kings, they display for us the homage, the worship um, that kings are to render to this worthy Christ, who is king of kings and lord of lords. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6 says, They will bring gold and frankincense, speaking of the kings of the earth, and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. So though these are not three kings of Orient are, uh, yet they do give us a directory for worship in some sense, that kings of the earth would do well to mimic. So do you know how to tell, then, a sincere worshiper of God from a hypocrite? Because it's right here in our text. Consider... The gifts a sincere worshiper brings. One who truly adores God as his God 
as his precious possession, will bring the very best he has to offer. He will spare no expense. And that's what these magi do. He will muster the very best of his time, his talent, his treasure, his energy in service to God. As King David said so insightfully to Arayuna, the Jebusite, in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he will not offer gifts to the Lord, his God, which cost him nothing. The Magi, by their sincere worship, show us the worthiness of Christ to be adored, that he indeed is true royalty, that he indeed is king. They give him the best. Now, the hypocrite, on the other hand, by his lame offerings, tells a lie about God. He's like Cain, who, who brought not to God first fruits or fat portions from flocks of fields, but brought rather a lame offering uh, for which God had no regard. To such a one, God is not worthy of high honor. God's a convenience, a means to an end. Well, the Magi instruct us in a better way, but not without much risk, as we will see in the rest of the passage, which we've skipped over. You see, the adoration of Christ is a worthy business, but it's also a dangerous, a risky business. And we see this danger posed by Herod's response and then motivating Jerusalem's response and finally confirmed by the Magi's dream at the very end of our text. First, the danger is posed by Herod's response kind of throughout the passage, starting in the first half of verse 3. We've considered that the adoration of Jesus is worthy in the life of the Magi, but we need to go back now and consider from Herod in Jerusalem how it's dangerous. The first part of verse 3 tells us something very, very important about King Herod the Great. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was deeply disturbed in his heart. What you need to know about this Herod is he's been on the throne for over 35 years at this point. He's established, he's personal friends with Caesar Augustus and before him with Antony. Some of the most powerful men, not just of the Roman Empire at that time, but of all Roman history. And yet, he hears this news. He doesn't laugh it off. He doesn't even think, oh, I'm about to, to pass from the scene anyway. This is okay. He gets paranoid. He's troubled. This Herod's a real basket case. News of a potential rival king, one with a more legitimate claim to the throne than he ever had, plunges him into a bout of paranoia. So he gathers together the Sanhedrin, the council of Jewish experts, and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. And this group plays a prominent role in Matthew's gospel as the chief priests and scribes, together with the Pharisees, usually that's how Matthew puts it, oppose uh, Christ's ministry at every turn. But here, they leverage scripture to confirm to this king, born of Edom, not of the Jews, to confirm to him that Christ's claim as king is, in fact, legitimate. And he shall come forth from Bethlehem, as we've already seen. And so from them, both Herod and the Magi learn the whereabouts of Jesus. We know that the Magi purpose to worship Christ. And Herod, he feigns interest in doing the same in verse 8. But what he does with the Magi give us a hint of really what he's after. He calls them in secret to learn from them the possible time that the Christ was born. He's not content to know the place. If he just wanted to worship Jesus, 
All he needed to know was the place. But he wants to know the time. Why does he want this information? Why does he ask for it in secret under cloak of darkness? Verse 16, which we'll get to next week, but we do need to look at it very briefly, uh, tells us why. This paranoid, uh, illegitimate, in the sense, king wanted this information to snuff out his potential rival by slaying all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Matthew tells us exactly why Herod wants this information, because he's a murderer. Perhaps we do not feel it here in the comfort of our church buildings in America and under the protection of our constitutional liberties and rights, but the adoration of Jesus Christ is a dangerous business. It's surrounded by bloodshed. We see the nature of the danger posed in Herod's response. Today, as the sun rises on congregations of Christ's faithful ones around the world, many of our brothers and sisters gather in the shadow of danger posed by hostile government authorities, malicious ethnic and religious groups, and lone wolf terrorists. Do we count the cost when we gather for worship? May the prayer ever and always be on our lips, either in secret or when we're together. Lord, give us resolve to worship you in the face of opposition. Grant faithfulness to the persecuted church around the world. Remind us that you prepare for us a table of feasting and delight. Yea, even in the presence of our enemies. Now this danger posed in Herod's response is then what motivates Jerusalem's response uh, detailed very briefly in verse 3. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now, it seems that this danger, much like the worthiness of Christ motivating the Magi, the danger then motivates the Jews who should have been receiving their Messiah. It was not for any special love of Herod that Jerusalem would have been troubled at news of a of a promised Messiah coming to liberate them. No, it was fear of what might fall out from news of arrival to murderous Herod's throne. Herod's reign, as I said, was stained with blood and intrigue. He was what political philosophers call a true Machiavellian. He ruled through trickery and fear, sprinkled with occasional favors, doled out to privileged classes in order to shore up his authority. So news of a rival king troubled him because he was paranoid and selfish, but the same news then troubled all Israel, and all Jerusalem, I should say, because the people feared how he might lash out in response. They knew what he was like. He was like a king cobra or a rattlesnake backed into a corner that would lash out and bite. It's notable that not one of the priests or scribes, those who clearly understood the prophecy from Micah chapter 5, those who were orthodox in their theology, mind you, did not accompany. None of them accompanied the Magi to Bethlehem. The fear that they lived under so overwhelmed them, they could not burst out of it to see what they knew had been promised by God himself through the prophet Micah. Stunning, frozen in fear. Christ comes as king to us today, not in a manger stall, not, not in a little hut, in a little town of Bethlehem, but he comes to us today by his spirit of revival and reformation in the church. 
And when he comes in this way, the world gets turned upside down, to borrow a phrase from Acts 17, verse 6. But too often, significant groups in the church, even orthodox groups in the church, try to put a stop to revival and reformation because they do not want the status quo to be interrupted. The very people who know the word best, who should be the first to embrace revival, to embrace Reformation according to the word of God as signs of Christ's government of the church are the ones who freeze in fear that their lives will be flipped upside down by this Jesus. Now, to the credit of the scribes and the chief priests, they feared for their lives, and rightfully so. Whereas, when we look at the church today, what are people afraid of? We're going to change the color of the carpets. We're going to take flags out of an auditorium. We're going to maybe bust up some windows. I mean, what are people frightened of? At least in this country, we have no excuse to resist the coming of Christ. Now, I know that we're in the early phases of our fellowship here at Antioch, and so we haven't run into this. And this church building and name it has some age to it, going back to 1843, but we're really a new church. And as we seek to ground all that we do on the word of of God, and we're going to do this imperfectly, but in submission to God's word, open to correction from it, let us continue ever and always as a church to examine, to inspect, and then to conform our practices to God's word. In other words, let us welcome the rule and reign of Christ our King. Let us pray for revival and reformation that he would visit us and lead us and let us labor diligently to promote the same, both here and in other churches. This beauty of Presbyterianism is we're all connected. And so with gentleness and humility of heart, we can call others as well in other churches, submit to Christ, the King. He has come. We cannot be motivated by danger to cling to the dead weight of fear of man represented by all Jerusalem here in our text. Rather, we must as a church cling to Christ our King. For he is the true king, and as such, indeed, he's able to deliver us from all the dangers and threats which surround us, which brings me then to the last point. Herod's response proved the danger uh, of adoring Christ. That danger then motivates Jerusalem's response, but it's confirmed by the Magi's dream in verse 12. Though we should condemn Jerusalem's cowardly and faith, faithless response, we should recognize that the danger is indeed real. The Magi's dream here confirms it. By fulfilling their mission, the Magi have become worshipers of Christ. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. They've thrown their lot in with Herod's rival. Though Herod may be an imposter, he has real power to inflict pain on those who align with the true king. And surely, if they had returned to him, he would have destroyed them and this rival. In the Magi's dream, which is assumed by the translators of the NASB to be from God, it says by God in italics because it's assumed there, and it's rightly so, confirms what we already know, that the adoration of Christ is a dangerous business. Now consider the fact in light of the danger posed by Herod. God does not leave the Magi vulnerable. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. 
He warns them of the danger, and he delivers them out of it. We can put it this way. He honors their faithfulness. Like a good mother who loves her children and urgently warns them to keep out of the street or away from the stove or a fire, God urgently warns the Magi in a language they would understand, in a dream, and he leads them out of the way of danger. Now, God warns you of many dangers today, but he doesn't do it by dreams and visions. He does it in the word of his son. Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews begins this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In the word of his Son, we are warned away from the way of foolishness, the way of destruction, the way of death. And you are called, rather, to the straight path of righteousness, of truth, and of life. Children, if you're to be a worshiper of Christ, you must heed his voice to keep out of the way of foolishness and idolatry. His word comes to us, it's urgent, sometimes it's sharp, but his voice is always sweet. Dr. Piper read that meditation from Luke 44, tells us that gracious words fall from his lips, and that's an echo of Psalm 45, which we'll sing in a moment which testifies that grace is poured upon his lips. This is the nature of this voice that warns us. It's a clarion call. It rouses us like an alarm, but it's for our good. It's with our interest in mind. Yes, the words of petty tyrants and imposter kings may be full of thinly veiled bloodshed, explicit threats, and certainly deception as we've seen with King Herod. But the word of the King of kings, of the Lord of lords, is altogether true and able to deliver us from danger. You know, nowadays, jewelers and precious metal dealers, they don't use the old bite test to inspect the nobility of gold. They don't do that anymore. There are much better, uh, more reliable tests which they use, either looking for certain markings or vinegar. They use all kinds of things. In much the same way, you and I have so many more resources at our disposal to, to perform the test of Christ's claims as Messiah and King of our lives over against the manifold claims of the world. Namely, we have his royal word. We have the completed canon of 66 divinely inspired, infallible, and authoritative books of Scripture, which are wholly and entirely sufficient for all matters of orthodox faith and of holy living. The Magi had none of that. They had scraps and traces and echoes, perhaps. They show us, these words of Christ show us that Jesus is indeed worthy of your adoration, even when it is dangerous to give him honor even when there's risk involved. The Magi beheld Christ as a poor and helpless infant. He was born in the shadow of a petty tyrant, propped up with the full power of Rome behind him. But we have so much more to confirm for us that Christ is king, to motivate us to worship him, to instruct us in the way of paying him due honor, whatever the danger may be. We have four accounts of his miraculous life and ministry in the four Gospels. Add to the Gospels the account of the apostolic church in the book of Acts, which is really an account of the risen Christ working through his church to expand and extend his kingdom. Pile on top of that the letters of Paul, 
the summary statement of Christ's humiliation and exaltation in Philippians 2, the grand presentation of God's eternal purpose in Christ for our Savior to save sinners in Ephesians chapter 1, the promise of deliverance for the Jews through their Messiah in Romans 9 to 11, the victory of Christ the King over death in his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, don't forget to register the entire letter of Hebrews, which speaks of Christ's supremacy, the authoritative encouragements and exhortations of that royal herald Peter who comes to a dispersed people with glad tidings of good news, and then the, the consoling letters of John, which teach us what it means to be a follower of this Christ. And finally, as the capstone of it all, the wondrous book of Revelation, which magnifies the glory of Christ, puts it under a microscope that we would behold the ancient of days in him. All scripture sings the theme, Jesus Christ is worthy of your adoration, not just in November and December, but year-round, even when it is dangerous to give him honor. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.